and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked about the events that led up to the Council of Constantinople, the first great council of the church after Nicaea. It's called an ecumenical council because it's said to represent the whole church, and the whole church agreed to its canons. This is the whole Orthodox Church, not the various heretical groups, but the um, the Orthodox, the Catholic, the church all said, yes, we agree with everything that went down at the Council of Constantinople. So in 381, bishops from all over the church, about 186, uh, came together, and they were responding in part to the situation we discussed last time, in which much of the church had been taken over by these Arian patriarchs. You had the Patriarch of Alexandria, this really important bishop who was a hardcore Anomian Arian. You had the Patriarch of Antioch, a really important city in the ancient world, hugely influential, also the first place that Christians are called Christians, a place that has a very central role in uh, the early church, as we see in the book of Acts. And they also have this uh, Anamoian bishop. So the Anamoians, you have original Arianism, so that following the teachings of Arius, this, this priest from Alexandria, And in that original Arianism, the original Arians want to say that Christ is like God, but definitely not God. So they they think of Christ as being um, someone who shares in God's power, who shares in God's glory, because God allows him to share in these things. But he he himself is not God. But they're happy with being like God language. For this new breed of Arians, the Anamoians, they want to say Christ is unlike God. He is unlike God in every way. He is so far from God, there is no way to confuse the two. And even the Arians who are existing in this day are sort of like, that's taking it a little far. You're basically just trolling us now. Like, you're just sort of trying to be extreme and take this extreme position as a rhetorical stance, and it's really not helping anyone. So at this point, the majority of Arians are sort of a little bit in between. They want to say that Jesus is not God, but that he is so much like God that he is the perfect reflection of God, the perfect image of God. And so the Anamoian party is kind of driving everybody a little bit crazy. When Theodosius comes to the throne, he says, look, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I'm a Catholic Christian. I'm just a regular old Christian. All this Arian stuff makes no sense to me, and I want it out of here. He immediately calls this council. So these 186 bishops that come together and they condemn this Anamoian heresy. Plus, they can condemn a bunch of other heresies. I had a student recently say, why do we care? Like, why does all this stuff matter? Isn't this just kind of splitting hairs? We're talking about these little, teeny, tiny, minute theological differences. And I mean, can't we just say, like, we go to church, it's all good, we love each other. Who cares about this stuff? It's important because these are actually not teeny tiny minute theological differences. Instead, 
This type of heresy is the definition of idolatry. It is making a new god, making a false god to worship. It's making a god that you didn't come to through revelation, through relationship, through falling in love with God, but you reasoned your way to. You took what makes sense on a human scale and made God out of that. So in all of these heresies, something I mentioned last time, in all of these heresies, they're not being creative, they're not being bold, they're not thinking broadly, they're being reductionist. They're taking the mystery of God, the hugeness of God, God's infinity, God's eternity, and they're bringing it down and putting it into a little, teeny tiny, human-sized, comprehensible box. They're taking just the vastness of God and saying, well, let's actually make something out of it that we can comprehend. Let's, let's bring it down to our scale and make some sense out of it. So they're taking this idea that God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're saying, look, all of us have had grade school arithmetic we know that one plus one plus one equals three. It doesn't equal one. So let's make the math problem work. Let's make sense out of this. Let's reduce it to something we can all agree on and understand. And that is just common sense. And this is literally the definition of idolatry. It is taking the worship that is due to God, who is huge and inconceivable and sustaining the whole creation and putting that towards something within the creation, something comprehensible, something understandable, be it a golden cow or be it a rationalist, easily understood version of God. Another reason it's interesting to explore these heresies is that they're basically all alive and well in the church, because we always have this temptation to say, I can't make any sense out of that. Let's go with something I can't. Let's actually make sense out of this. Let's do something we can understand. Because we ourselves has this, have this temptation to say, I don't want the mystery. I want something totally comprehensible. And go for a reductionistic explanation. So let's look at what this council was about and what they were condemning. The canons of the Council of Constantinople begin with Canon 1. The faith of the 318 fathers assembled at Nicaea shall not be set aside. So what they did at the Council of Nicaea, that's good stuff. We should not get rid of it. It shall remain firm. And every heresy shall be anathematized, particularly that of the Anomoians, that of the Semi-Arians or the Pneumatomachi, that of the Sabalians, that of the Photinians, and that of the Apollinarians. So, what is all this stuff? What are they talking about? First, let's start with the original Nicene Creed, the creed as it's written at the Council of Nicaea. In some ways, it's familiar to those of us who are in liturgical traditions, and in other ways, it's pretty surprising, because the creed gets totally edited and altered and finalized at Constantinople. So way back in 325, at the last ecumenical council, the creed went, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, 
who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Amen. So, if you are someone from a tradition that says the Nicene Creed every Sunday, some parts of this you're like, yeah, it's just the Nicene Creed. Other parts you're like, wait, what's that stuff at the end? These anathemas? And also, we believe in the Holy Spirit, full stop? Nothing else about the Holy Spirit? So, in this original Nicene Creed, if you are not an Arian, then you could probably say this with integrity. But if you are someone who has a very alternative theology of the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that could mean anything, really. So, at this time, you have one group called the Pneumatomachi, which in Greek means the spirit fighters. They are fighting against the Holy Spirit. They did not call themselves this. Some, um, they're also referred to as the Mycedonians. This is not because they're from Mycedonia. This is from this guy, Mycedonus, who is teaching this Pneumatomachi theology. And basically their assertion was that God is binatarian. So God is Father, God is Son, and then there is this force or this being or this angel created by God called the Holy Spirit. And so while they may not have a problem with the Father and the Son being God, the divinity of the Holy Spirit is what they're questioning, is what they're actually arguing against. So sometimes in the modern church, you kind of hear this theology. You hear the Holy Spirit referred to as like an energy or as a force or as a phenomenon that happens. You know, I prayed to God and then he sent the Holy Spirit upon me and it made me do this thing. It's sort of like like magnetism or um, there's one German theologian, I'm sure he didn't mean this literally, but he compares, uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg compares the Holy Spirit to like a force field. I, I don't even know what that means. Uh, it sounds like a Star Wars thing. But there, there is a, a sense that the Holy Spirit is this like energy of God or a work of God or something that God produced to do something else. But for Orthodox theology, for traditional Christian theology, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not like gravity or magnetism or electricity or whatever. The Holy Spirit is God. And it's this equality with the Father. It is this this full consubstantiality, this um, being of one essence with the Father that is really the point of debate here. It's not so much the personhood or the power or the efficacy or whatever of the Holy Spirit. It's, is the Holy Spirit God? St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, this is in the second chapter, says, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. 
And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. So for St. Paul, the only way to understand God is God understanding God. Only God can understand God. And it is the Spirit of God, which he says searches the depths of God, proclaims the wisdom of God. We as Christians can only know God through the work of God within us. Through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, we come to know Christ, because without the Holy Spirit, Christ is just a person who lived 2,000 years ago and lived this life of perfect love and destroyed death through rising again and ascended into heaven. But we don't have any access to that except just reading some words on a page. Um, One 20th century theologian said, without the Spirit, the gospel is a dead letter to us. I mentioned this in the episode we did on the Holy Spirit. But he he means by this that the gospel is full of joy and peace and wisdom and revelation and the glory of God. But without the Spirit, I never get any of that. Because I, by myself, me, this finite, temporal, totally limited, small-brained person, there's no way for me to comprehend God. So it actually takes God working within me, praying within me, illuminating me to see God. So the Holy Spirit for St. Paul is not only equal in power and dignity to God, but he searches the depths of God. He is utterly divine in the way that the Son and the Father are utterly divine. And for the church, if the Holy Spirit is not divine, then what hope do we have of actually coming to God? What hope do we have of actually true prayer emerging from us? If the Holy Spirit is just a force or just an angel or just a messenger or just some creature created by God, then he himself does not know the fullness of God. But instead, the church has always proclaimed that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is fully divine in the way that the Son and the Father are fully divine. Now, if you get into the procession of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? That's a whole nother conversation. But the church up until this point was always agreed that the Holy Spirit is God, God the Holy Spirit. So the Namadamaki, very problematic. The other heresies that are denied in the Council of Constantinople are all what are called Christological heresies. They're wrong rationalizations about the nature of Christ. So Sabalianism is denied. And the Sabalians want to say, so Jesus is God? How does that work? That doesn't make any, and the Holy Spirit is God? That also, it's hard to wrap your head around. It is a very, as I said, confusing math problem. One plus one plus one always equals three. That's just the way math works. One plus one plus one cannot equal one. So let's make the math work, the Sibelians want to say. So the Sibelians would say, okay, I've got it. I see how it works now. It's actually totally comprehensible, totally rational. This is something you could teach to a five-year-old, and it's not actually a big deal. There's no mystery here. It's just totally reasonable, common sense. And it works like this. So let's say you have a doctor, 
a doctor who is this great surgeon, head of a hospital, this revered kind of terrifying figure. You know, med students see this doctor coming and they like hide in their cubby holes. Oh my gosh, here's this big doctor. It's Dr. Jones. Run away. But then this doctor comes home at night and she's just mom to her six-year-old. And she's like, mom, can you get this? Mom, where's my apple? Can you cut it up, please? Mom, I'm. Uh, can you help me with my homework? And so at work, she's Dr. Jones, this like terrifying figure. At home, she's just mom. And then she goes to visit her parents and she's just little Nancy. And little Nancy, oh, she can never find her shoes. Little Nancy, oh, she doesn't know how to get her car fixed. Oh, Nancy, you don't know how to. And like to her parents, she's still like, the six-year-old that they raised who couldn't find her shoes. And so this one person is actually Dr. Jones and is actually mommy and is actually little Nancy. She is all those things, but she doesn't mean that she's actually three separate persons. And so for the Sabalians, they said, okay, what if it's like this? What if God sometimes appears to us like the son, appears to us like the father, appears to us like the Holy Spirit? But those are really like it's like three masks that God puts on. Or maybe it's God the Father with two masks. Sometimes he's like putting on the sun mask. He's like, hey, I'm Jesus. How's it going? Other times he's putting on the spirit mask. But it's it's just the same God. Like it, it's not a confusing math problem at all. It's three different modes he's in, three different roles that he plays. So this sometimes gets called modalism. It's this heresy which says the Trinity is just a couple of different acts that God puts on when he comes to humanity. And those who heard this said, oh my gosh, the Trinity, you solved it. It makes so much sense. It is totally rational, totally reasonable, really not mysterious. It's not a big deal at all. And the church said, that's the problem. You just created an idol. You took something that is inconceivable, infinite, eternal, and you shrunk it down to a Dr. Nancy Jones-sized box. It's no longer inconceivable because it's no longer the revelation of God. It is no longer that which God has revealed to us. It's just something you made up. So Sabalianism or modalism or monarchianism, as it's called, it goes by a bunch of names, is denied by this council. Instead of saying that God wears these three masks, they say, no, God is three separate persons who are absolutely one in essence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are completely united, are completely together, are of one essence, and yet they are three individuals. Another heresy condemned here is Apollinarianism. And Apollinaris of Laodicea is kind of a sad figure because he was so committed to the Nicene position. He was so committed to saying that God, that Jesus is fully divine, is fully human, that he kind of took it too far. He was so fierce in his rhetoric that he came up with this perfect solution as to how Jesus could be fully divine and fully human. And the church was like, you just did the same thing the heretics did. Like you were actually just rationalized Christ away and created this new being, which is not in scripture, is not in the teaching of the apostles, not in the teaching of the fathers. Apollinaris wants to say that, yes, Jesus is fully divine and he's human, 
but maybe not all the way through. He is so divine that a little bit of that humanity gets eclipsed. So he still has real flesh and blood. He is still really born of a human mother. He really ate fish on the beach. He did all those things. The part of him that's divine, however, is his mind. So he is he has kind of a twofold Pop-Tart-like nature in which he is human on the outside, God on the inside. So for Apollinaris, the word of God, the word of God who we see standing over Samuel's bed saying, Samuel, get up. Samuel says, here I am. Uh, The word of God who comes to Abraham, comes down over the oaks of Mamre, who eats with Abraham, the word of God who is given Um, a calf and cakes, the word of God who gives prophecies to people, to various prophets, the word of God who comes to the patriarchs over and over again in the Old Testament, the word of God who John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word stood in front of God, and the word was God. The word of God was inside Christ's head, basically. His mind was the word of God. So external body, completely human, internal life, completely God. And people who heard this were like, oh, yeah, divinity, humanity, that makes sense now. He's kind of like a centaur. You know how a centaur, it's like got the horse body and the human torso and head. He sort of has like a human outside body, a God mind inside, makes total sense. But the church said, that's not what is in scripture. That's not what's in the fathers. You are creating this sort of rationalized hybrid being who has a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. That's not who Christ is. Christ is fully human. He is a hundred percent one of us in solidarity with us. He is actually a regular old human being. He is actually our brother. He is just like you and me. And his mind was a human mind. And yet he was also fully God. In his humanity, he was limited. In his divinity, he was infinite eternal. In his humanity, he knew some things. In his divinity, he knew everything. Origin of Alexandria says that when Christ goes to the tomb of Lazarus, you know, so Christ is told Lazarus is dying and he's like, it's not a big deal. He's just going to fall asleep. And then we'll we'll hang out here a couple of days. And so then he goes to Bethany. Lazarus' sister runs to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And our Lord says, it's not a big deal. He's just asleep. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then he goes to the tomb. And rather than saying, not a big deal, Lazarus, come out he bursts into tears. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And Origen says that in his humanity, yes, he was weeping for his friend, but much more so in his divinity, he was weeping at death, to see death once again conquering humanity, because death is the enemy of God. Death is the creation turning away from God and towards nothingness. So he's always fully divine, and fully human, not just in a, uh, I have like a cyborg you know, robot arm and a human arm, and I've got like one of each, not just a sort of divine mind and a human body. He is 100% human and 100% God. Interestingly, the logical contradiction here is not that it's not there at all. Even though 100% plus 100% 
like you can't that doesn't equal 200% like the percent per 100 you only have 100% ever we actually attribute 100% plus 100% to things all the time and in a completely logical way so you can say the ball is 100% red and 100% round you can say the ice cream is 100% vanilla and 100% melted these are not contradictions those are actually true so if redness and roundness were the same category. If you were saying that the ball is 100% round and 100% square, that would be a big logical contradiction. But since roundness and redness, shape and color, are two different attributes, two different categories, a ball can totally be 100% round and 100% red. God, divinity, the essence of what it is to be God, and being a human, these are not the same category. So it's not like a centaur where you can either have horse feet or human feet. It's one or the other. Divinity and humanity are so radically different. I mean, you can't think of two more different things except divinity and anything else in the creation because God is infinitely unlike the creation. He is infinite and eternal. He is so far beyond the creation and yet present to every point in the creation. So there's actually no contradiction here because divinity, humanity, they don't occupy the same space. They're not the same category. Anyway, nobody told that to Apollinaris until the Council of Constantinople, where he was condemned. Last but not least, we have everybody in the 20th century's favorite heresy, the Photinians. And they probably wouldn't have called it the Photinians. They would just say like, well, it's obvious. It's clear. This is just the way it all works. And this is, in a sense, the most simple and the most common of the heresies. And it's one you hear literally all the time in all sorts of Christian traditions. And this is that Jesus was just a guy. All this God stuff, it's just made up. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely illogical. You can't wrap your brain around it. So Jesus was a good teacher. He was an innovative moralist. He was a very respectable, noted ethical thinker, you know? Previous thinkers said, hate your enemies. He said, love your enemy. Nobody ever said that before. That's really impressive. He was a great rabbi. He taught that you could break the Sabbath for some reason sometimes, but not at other times. That's important somehow, maybe, I guess. Um, He was a good friend. He loved his mother. Uh, Probably good carpenter. Not God. That's the Photinian heresy. And you hear this all the time. You hear people say, well, you know, I like Jesus' teaching. I want to break the Sabbath sometimes too. Or I want to love my enemies. I want to be a good person. The problem with this is that if Jesus was just a moral teacher, then he's a really ineffectual moral teacher. Because his ideas have been discussed in more places across the globe than any other set of ideas in the history of the world. Christianity is the biggest religion humanity has ever known. It spans the whole globe. You can go to the North Pole, the South Pole, you'll find Pentecostal churches and Orthodox churches. You can go to the mean streets of New York or Tokyo. You can go to the most remote parts of the Amazon or New Guinea. There are churches there. Christianity is everywhere, and yet we are all, as human beings, still a bunch of jerks to each other. We're still, like, launching bombs and beating each other up and stealing each other's 401k. I don't know what we do, but all kinds of awful stuff. So if Jesus is just a moral instructor, well, it didn't make any difference. We're all still chumps and jerks. 
But Jesus is God. He is not just a teacher. He is our Savior. He is drawing us all to himself. And at the last day, we will all stand before him. He's destroyed death. He is the breaker of the chains of sin and evil and the enemy. He is the fullness of love and peace and goodness and justice and wisdom and harmony and joy incarnate in the flesh. So that's what the church would say when these Photinians would say like, nah, he's just a guy, just a guy. And this, if you read the New Testament with your eyes open to what all this stuff meant in a first century Jewish context, this is on every page. I may have said before, there's a great book by Rabbi Jacob Neusner, who's kind of like the great, in a sense, like father of 20th century Jewish studies. Definitely not a Christian in any way. He's a Jewish rabbi, a really noted scholar, published more than anybody, just a publishing machine, incredibly smart. He has this book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, in which he imagines himself in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, look, everything that Jesus taught is 100% in line with the Torah. It's 100% in line with the teachings of the really good, really smart, very orthodox, best rabbis of his day. His teaching is regular old first century Judaism, except for one thing. This is one thing that he taught that was different. And this one thing is the reason, Jacob Neusner says, I could never be a Christian. I could never be a follower of Jesus. Because on every page of the gospel, he's proclaiming himself to be God. So we read that he breaks the Sabbath because he's Lord of the Sabbath. And we think, oh yeah, now you can do whatever you want on Saturday. Okay, I'll play football or whatever. He's breaking the Sabbath because he's not actually breaking the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He himself is God. He says, like, here before you is something greater than the temple. What's greater than the temple? God. So from a first century Jewish perspective, on every page, he's making this huge, insane, gigantic claim to be fully God and fully human. So the church said to the Photinians, read your Bible. Like, this has nothing to do with the Christian faith. This is condemned. They went on to talk about how bishops couldn't leave their own diocese and go meddle in the diocese of other bishops. So if you're the bishop of, uh, I don't know, Constantinople, you can't go over to Milan and say like, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the altar here and we're going to put it over here and we're going to get a new baptismal font. They couldn't meddle in one another's affairs. So it says there are these really important bishops who have authority over their area. There is Antioch, there's Alexandria. Uh, You also have another bishop. You have Rome, of course. You have another bishop who, even though he's not from an old city, even though it's not an apostolic foundation, even though all the criteria we use for deciding who an important bishop is really doesn't apply, they say the bishop of Constantinople, this new city built by Constantine, built on the side of an older city, but a much smaller city, the bishop of Constantinople is second in dignity after the bishop of Rome. Why? Because it's the second most important city in the empire. You have, you know, the number one city, which is Rome, and you have the number two city, which is Constantinople. So you have the number one bishop in the church, which is Rome, the number two bishop, which is Constantinople. Not number one in terms of power over the whole church. Number one in dignity. The one who should speak first in a council. The one who should adjudicate between two arguing bishops. Not the boss of everything. So, That's another thing which happens at the Council of Constantinople. 
There are several other pieces of legislation, several other canons, but maybe the most significant thing is they rewrite the Nicene Creed. And this is not like they trash the old one and come up with a new one. They just add in a bunch of stuff and they take off all the sort of nasty bits at the bottom, which are like, you're anathematized, you're out of the church. If you believe there was a time when the father was and the son wasn't, you're out of here. They're like, "Eh, maybe that's a little rough, not so necessary. So they come up with what is now called, technically, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. And when we say the Nicene Creed, what we actually mean is Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. We just shorten it to Nicene Creed because the Constantinopolitan part is a real mouthful. So what did they come up with? It goes, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So now you get the finished product, the real deal, the Nicene Creed, which is actually the Creed of Constantinople. So that's a bit about the second great ecumenical council. Next time we'll be looking at some more councils, some more theology, and we'll keep the creed the same. Thanks so much for joining me for the History of Christianity. 